On this show, we discuss crimes that are often graphic in nature. Listener discretion is advised. Episode 36 is called Triple D. Sort of lame, I know, but effective. Or so I told myself, so just let me think it. I'm your host, Paulette, and this is Crime Biscuit. worth, the Triple D wasn't intentional. I was doing some research and somehow I ended up with three sets of notes on three different cases. I started writing them up and realized there was a pattern of Ds. So there you go. Three cases, all with a D. Let's dive in. First case is Douglas Thames. It's 1989 and Marsha Reed is a police officer in Fort Collins, Colorado. Her job is quiet and pretty routine until... She walks into a home and into a horrific crime. Fort Collins at the time was a pretty small town, and this was only Detective Reed's third murder case. When she entered and walked up the stairs, she saw urine and feces in the hallway. So we already know it's going to be an unpleasant crime scene. In the hall, she finds the body of Susan Dahl. Susan is naked, and there is a telephone cord around her neck. The scene seems like a blitz attack to Marsha. Crime scene techs are called in. One of the techs, Ruth Hurst, forms the opinion that this event is probably a sexually motivated homicide. Using alternative light, she illuminates bodily fluids. There are reactive areas on and around Susan Dahl's body. Upstairs, they find a heating grate that is covered in semen. Ruth can't believe how much of that substance is at this scene. There's even more semen upstairs, and it is now pretty obvious that whoever did it wasn't making even the smallest attempt to cover up the crime. 1989, and DNA isn't really a thing yet, so to test the evidence, they have to rely on fingerprints. And fingerprints they have. They're on an open window upstairs on the window frame. They find some really good ones there. She's actually, she being Ruth Hurst, is able to pull seven prints from the window frame and runs them against known offenders, but comes up empty-handed. It does seem that the upstairs window is the entry point, and that gives them kind of a lead, or at least the hint of a lead. They believe this entry point would indicate a younger offender, since the roof could only be accessed by a fence. And an older offender wouldn't be as likely to make that kind of acrobatic attempt to get to that window. A younger offender, a kid even, would be able to, and might even find it kind of exciting. Translation, old farts like me would not be able to get up there to that window. At least not without breaking a hip or something. So the suspect profile is starting to take shape as they turn their focus to the victim. Who is Susan Dahl and who out there might want her dead? Susan was beautiful and described by her friends as fun and outgoing. She was known to kind of hang out with men who were considered to be on the fast track. And all of these men in question are interviewed, and unfortunately, all of them are eliminated. Then they find out that 10 days before the murder, her home had been burglarized. And would you like to know something very odd that was taken? 25 pairs of underwear. Not the usual loot that a robber is looking for, 
So along with the underwear, some bottles of wine were also taken. Police are thinking that it's pretty likely that the person that killed her might also be the person who took the underwear. They also suspect that this person is in all likelihood stalking Susan. The items of clothing taken, the alcohol, etc., again point at a younger offender. Police begin canvassing the neighborhood. A few neighbors report seeing a boy on a BMX bike kind of lurking around the neighborhood on the night Susan was robbed. They provide a description which is used to make a composite sketch. They get a few calls on the tip line, but none of it ends up being very useful. The composite, much to the dismay of law enforcement, seems to look a whole hell of a lot like every teenage boy they come across. A month passes with no movement. The murder is still unsolved, and the community, which isn't pleased with a lack of progress, starts having neighborhood meetings. At those meetings, the people are expressing their shock and concern over what happened and the fact that the police aren't getting anywhere as far as figuring out who did this. People aren't just concerned for themselves, but for their children, and you can't really blame them for wondering if their kids are safe with this person, this murderer at large. Needless to say, the police are being scrutinized and the community is almost bordering on hysteria at this point. This is a small community. A series of robberies take place and guess what? The only items being taken are, you guessed it, women's underwear. The last break-in happens on December 10th, 1989. A year goes by and the investigation goes cold. Detective Reed has not given up hope though. She still believes that they will be able to solve the case. Let's hop forward to 1995, six years after Susan Dahl was raped and strangled. Detective Reed has been working the case for those six years, but without any real luck. Until, that is, one day, a maintenance person goes to work on a furnace and finds a wad of women's underwear stuffed into that furnace. On a shelf nearby in the same basement is a kind of ball of burned nylon. It turns out to be 13 pairs of underwear that are half destroyed by heat. Detective Reed believes wholeheartedly that they belong to Susan Dahl. On July 14th, the underwear are examined with an alternative light source and a lot of bodily fluid starts luminescing. They send it out for testing and a DNA profile comes back on the semen as a perfect match to the semen at the Dahl murder scene. Detective Reed cross-checks the address where the underwear was found with a criminal database, hoping to find some kind of connection between suspects and the address. August of 89 to January of 1990 is the time frame that she's looking at. What she finds is that there is a shoplifting report for three boys who reported that location as the address where they lived. The boys are Keith and Doug Thames and Paul Truquillo. They were between 15 and 16 at the time of the murders, and the three were inseparable. And they also happened to share a love of something else, BMX bikes. And as we remember, people reported a teenage boy on a BMX bike in the area at the time Susan was murdered. On 27th, 95, Detective Reed finds the now 20-year-old boys in Grand Junction, Colorado. She tells them that she's investigating a murder and wants to eliminate them. Now the boys do not want to talk to her, but they do agree to give her samples for DNA testing. She gets hair, blood, pubic hair, and fingerprints from all three. 
The hair and blood is submitted for testing, and then she takes the fingerprints back to Ruth Hurst. Now, over the past six years, Hurst has looked at 30,000 prints for this case, but was never able to find a match. Tens of thousands of prints later, Ruth finally finds a match. She calls Detective Reed to tell her that their search is over. The prints are a match for Doug Thames. On August 3rd, Detective Reed goes back to Grand Junction to arrest Doug for the murder of Susan Dahl. August 4th, she finds Doug at his roofing job and immediately puts the handcuffs on him and tells him he is under arrest for the murder of Susan Dahl. They get him back to the station and read him his rights. He doesn't really want to talk, but he does have questions, like what kind of evidence do they have to say that he did this? He asks for an attorney, and she has to stop questioning him. That same day, she gets the DNA results, and the odds are 1 in 500 million that the suspect is anyone but Doug Thames. This is pretty much a slam dunk for prosecutors. April 22, 1996, Detective Reed takes the stand at trial. Mitchell Murray is prosecuting the case. They have fingerprints and DNA evidence to use against him. Doug, who was, mind you, 16 at the time, claims he has an alibi. He says he was in Wyoming on a family camping trip when Dahl was murdered. At trial, his grandmother brings photos with dates to prove this alibi. During a break in the trial, the police are trying to find a way around this, and they do. The only photographs that have dates on them are the ones in the album that depict this supposed camping trip to Wyoming. All of the other photos just have a name or whatever, but no specific dates, like Uncle Bob or Cousin Sue. The alibi does not pass the smell test, since it's pretty obvious the pictures were labeled specifically to provide the alibi Doug is giving. On May 6, 1996, Doug Thames is found guilty of murder one and sentenced to life in prison. An interesting side note for you. Robert Dewey is a man who spent almost 18 years in prison for the rape and murder of a Palisade woman in 94. DNA evidence shows that it was not Dewey who committed the crime. Dewey, another D if you can believe it, I feel vindicated, was ordered to be released. Prosecutors had taken another look at the evidence found in 19-year-old J.C. Taylor's apartment and using new technology for them at the time, they were able to get a full DNA profile from semen found on a blanket at the murder scene. Authorities believe it to be a match to Doug Thames, who was by then already serving life for the murder of Susan Dahl. I feel sorry for Dewey, who gave up a lot of his life for something he didn't do. I believe he planned a lawsuit against law enforcement for his wrongful imprisonment, and I can't say I blame him. To our next D, which is David Noggle. On September 11, 1990, the body of a woman is found in a canal in West Palm Beach, Florida. There are marks and bruises on her arms and neck. She has a white tank top on that is pulled up around her neck, but from the neck down, she is naked. Detective Diane Creston is working the case, and the autopsy reveals that the cause of death is blunt trauma to the neck. Fingerprints on the body prove her to be 30-year-old Lucy Pate. Lucy is known to police. She is a local prostitute and drug addict who has also been arrested for theft in the past. Lucy, in her younger years, was a Girl Scout. She was active in church, and she was basically a normal kid. 
At the age of 20, she gets married, and about this time is when she starts battling with addiction. Doesn't take long before she has to work the streets to support her crack cocaine habit. Family tries to get her into rehab, but that only lasts about a week before the pull of her addiction yanks her back onto the streets. Now that Lucy has been found deceased, it's going to be a lot harder for police to find her killer. As a sex worker, she would have come into contact with a whole hell of a lot of strangers. Strangers she would have willingly gone with to get the money she needed to support her habit. At this point, the best chance the cops have to catch her killer is by using DNA. Cecilia Krause is a DNA supervisor at the Palm Beach County Sheriff's Department Crime Lab. The evidence she's given is a blood standard for the victim and a swab from a sexual battery kit that was performed. Fortunately, the swab yields semen and a DNA sample. The police now hit the streets and start obtaining blood samples from local drug dealers, Johns, and bikers. I was kind of wondering why they singled out bikers, but apparently this strip, this place where the prostitutes were known to be, there were a lot of bars where bikers hang out. So anyways, these are compared to the DNA profile of their suspect, but they don't come up with anything. Months go by, and any leads that they had are now dried up. At the time, Palm Beach averaged about 30 homicides a year, so there are other cases coming in, and Lucy's case goes cold. Four years go by until Palm Beach County Sheriff's Detective Wayne Robinson starts looking into the case. Back in the day, when Robinson was a street cop, he knew Lucy, along with a lot of other prostitutes. While he doesn't get any new info, he does go back to the case file and start reviewing it. Robinson thinks that it is beyond weird that Lucy's body was found more than five miles from the place she normally worked. His history on the street and knowledge of the habits of the sex workers tell him most of them will stay within a block of their usual spots. The bruises on Lucy's wrists also make him think that handcuffs were used on her. He thinks of this as a kind of pattern, and it also makes him think perhaps he is looking for someone posing as a police officer or maybe even an actual police officer. So Lake Worth Road is known locally as The Strip. This isn't a real safe place, and being a sex worker isn't a very safe profession to begin with. Most of the sex workers earn just enough to get their next high. Robinson heads to the place where the cold case files are kept. His goal is to go back and look at any unsolved murders of prostitutes in the county and look for similarities. Turns out there are 36 cases. What he wants to find is a John that pretends to be a cop. This leads him back to the strip to ask around and see if anyone fits that profile. While doing this, he talks to 51-year-old Renee and another sex worker named Tina. Renee has been working the strip for 15 years, so she knows a lot about what goes on, and she knows Johns that are frequent flyers. Tina tells Detective Robinson about a guy she had an encounter with. At first, he seemed nice, very friendly. Tina gets into the car with him, and he takes her to a sandy, wooded area. This makes Tina sort of nervous, but she gets out of the car, and so does the man. He then handcuffs Tina and cuts her clothes off of her with a butcher's knife. He blindfolds her and rapes her. Throughout this ordeal, Tina is terrified. She's terrified he's going to kill her when he's done. She decides that the best chance she has to survive this is to pretend that she is enjoying what this man is doing. Her plan works. She is eventually able to get out of the car and leave. The other sex worker that Detective Robinson talked to, the woman named Renee, also has a story to tell. She meets a man 
who suggests taking her to a place. Even though Renee usually likes to go to her own spot, she agrees. Normally, the Johns give her the money right away. But instead of giving her the money, this man produces a badge and says he's going to arrest her for prostitution. He claims to be an undercover cop, but the streetwise Renee does not buy it. When this man pulls out the handcuffs and attempts to put them on her, she decides she isn't going to cooperate. She jumps out of the car, runs around the back of it, and jumps into a nearby canal. She is able to get to a road and hitchhike her way back to town. Both Tina and Renee are able to give a description of the man to Detective Robinson. He is a white male, late 30s, kind of a cowboy type who drives a late model car. Unfortunately, this description fits hundreds of men who cruise the strip. Robinson questioned a lot of them, took a lot of them in for blood samples, but he still came up empty-handed. Then he hears a story about a woman named Joyce who was picked up on a street corner four years earlier. This man asks her, Joyce, how much? And she says, quote, the usual 20. And pulls out a badge from under the seat of the car and says she is under arrest as part of a sting operation. He then drives her out of town and into the woods. The place Joyce describes is less than a mile from where Lucy Pate's body was found four years earlier, which is the exact same time frame of when Lucy Pate was murdered. So the man punched Joyce in the gut, grabbed her by her hair, and dragged her while kicking her. Now they're in the car struggling, and Joyce fights back with everything she's got, kicking with her legs, and eventually she manages to get out through the passenger window. He runs, but he catches her. So Joyce is kneeling on the ground at this point, basically waiting to be murdered. But instead of killing her, the man rapes her, sodomizes her, and then beats her. Amazingly, after he's done terrorizing her, he agrees to drive Joyce back to town. The story that Joyce tells Detective Robinson matches up with Tina and Renee's encounters with some unknown perp. All of the women give the same general description of the man and the car this man was driving. Robinson then poses this question to Joyce. Did you ever see that man again after the attack? And Joyce says, yes. She saw the man on Lake Worth Road at some point after the attack and she made a point of getting the tag number off of his car. Joyce filed a complaint with the police, but nothing came of it. Robinson goes back and takes a look at that complaint and finds out that the car tag listed belongs to a frequent flyer on the strip. It belongs to a man by the name of David Noggle. Robinson then puts together a photo lineup, and lo and behold, Joyce IDs Noggle as her attacker. She really, really wants to press charges for the assault she suffered, but unfortunately, the statute of limitations is up for sexual assault. Which, personally, I don't think there should be a statute of limitations, and I'm sure a lot of you agree. But as we all know, there isn't a statute of limitations for murder, which is what Robinson wants to get him for, because he believes wholeheartedly that Noggle is the one who killed Lucy Pate. Noggle fits the bill for the predator who lures prostitutes into his car, flashes a badge, slaps on cuffs, and then assaults them, and potentially kills them. So who is David Noggle? He is a local carpenter, married, and a father of six. He also likes to make regular visits to the Strip to pick up prostitutes. As Robinson is digging, he finds several reports of Noggle committing, or attempting to commit, sexual battery 
and not just on local sex workers. His victim profile could just be some unfortunate woman walking down the street. Some local sex workers tell Detective Robinson that Noggle is known for putting girls in handcuffs and for beating them. This, my friends, is what law enforcement would like to call a pattern. And Detective Robinson immediately saw it as just that. On January 21st, 1995, Robinson plays a little visit to David Noggle. A morning at 8 a.m. and Robinson goes to a shabby little house where David Noggle lives. He invites Noggle to the station for a little chat. Here's what David admits to during that interview. Yes, he likes to go out at night when his wife is sleeping to pick up prostitutes. He likes to use handcuffs and to pretend that he's a cop. And that he is taking them to a safe house after he arrests them. All part of his fantasy, he says. He sometimes doesn't pay them for their services and he does assault them on occasion. He does not, however, admit to killing anyone and goes on to say he didn't even know Lucy Pate. He does follow that statement up with saying, though, that he doesn't always know the names of the sex workers he picks up. So who knows? After about four hours of questioning, Robinson gets up to take a breather, but asks Noggle if he'd give them some blood for DNA testing. Surprisingly, Noggle agrees. It will take six months of waiting to get the results of that DNA testing. In July of 1995, Dr. Cecilia Cross compares a blood sample from Noggle to the semen collected at Lucy Pate's autopsy, and surprise, surprise, it's a match. But before the fist pumping and victory dancing starts, this isn't a slam dunk that we might think it is. Lucy Pate was a sex worker, and David admits to having sex with lots of prostitutes. Even goes so far as to say, just because he didn't know her name, didn't mean didn't have sex with her at some point. All this blood evidence proves is that David Noggle had sex with Lucy Pate. That is a far cry from proving homicide. Robinson goes to Noggle's house again on July 16th, brings him back to the station for another round of questioning. He tells Noggle that they have a DNA match connecting him to Lucy Pate. Noggle now admits that yes, he did have sex with her. But he also says that he took Lucy back to where she wanted to go after they were done. Then tells Noggle that Lucy Pate's body was found right back out where Noggle admitted to having taken her. Noggle's reply is, quote, She could have been back out there. I don't know. I don't keep track of them when I drop them off. End quote. Noggle sticks to his story. So Robinson tries another tactic. He starts bad-mouthing Lucy, trying to make Noggle feel comfortable in the hopes he might open up to Robinson. Noggle says he picked Lucy up on September 10th, 1990, and after he took her to a rural area and handcuffed her, they had sex. Afterwards, they get into an argument about money, which pisses Noggle off. He claims that Lucy pulled a knife on him from her purse and starts fighting with him, so he hits her. Noggle says he basically threw his hand out intending to hit her in the chest, but instead of feeling the bone in her sternum like he expected, he hit something soft. According to David Noggle, Lucy started gagging and choking. I am assuming he's implying that he sort of karate chopped her in the throat by accident. Whatever the case, Noggle says he picked Lucy up and walked over to the nearby water and just dropped her in. For the next two hours, David Noggle provides details, including drawing a map of where he had dumped Lucy. All of his actions, according to David, were done in self-defense. 
There was no evidence of Lucy having a purse with her, so where was this knife she magically produced? Also, Noggle already told Detective Robinson that he'd handcuffed Lucy, so how exactly would she have tried to attack him with a knife even if she'd had a purse and the knife had been in it? 4.26 p.m., David is done talking and he gets up like he thinks he's going home. To his surprise, but not ours, he is immediately arrested. He's charged with first-degree murder, sexual battery, and kidnapping. On September 11th, 1996, David Noggle pleads guilty and is given 15 years. He only serves seven before he is released in March of 2002. Lucy Pate's mother feels the sentence was not nearly enough. I'd say I have to agree. Detective Robinson believes Noggle likely killed at least three other sex workers. There are 35 other unsolved cases involving sex workers, and it does seem entirely possible David Noggle had something to do with at least some of them. And our final case for today's episode is the David family. Charles Bruce Longo was born on November 19, 1938 in Yonkers, New York. His father was a well-known doctor in the area. He also had a brother named Dean who would grow up to become a police chief down in Florida. Bruce was a good-looking young man who was fun to be around, according to his neighbors. His mom, though, she had a different description for her son. She thought he was self-centered and that he thought he was better than other people because his dad was a rich doctor. Sounds stuck up, but not out of the ordinary. Lots of people get uppity because they think the status of someone in their family makes them a step above other people. Bruce graduated from high school in 1955, after which he enlisted in the Marine Corps. While enlisted, he made friends with some guys who were members of the LDS Church. For those who might not know, that is the Church of Latter-day Saints, or as most of us think of it, they were Mormons. Bruce started going to church services with his buddies, and in 1958, when he got back to Yonkers, he was baptized into the church. So Bruce helped run a group of young people, sort of like a church version of the Boy Scouts. In 1960, he went on a two-year mission to Uruguay, and Bruce paid for this trip himself. While on this trip, the first cracks in Bruce's mental health began to show. He started hearing voices and told some of the church officials that his plan was to become an apostle. He memorized the Book of Mormon, and he started having issues sleeping. Others around him started referring to him as a zealot. After 11 months of what was supposed to be a two-year mission, he was sent home after contracting hepatitis. The voices he was hearing continued. Bruce was hospitalized for a little bit while they not only treated the hepatitis, but evaluated his mental state. Not long after getting out of the hospital, Bruce went to Brigham Young University. Now, it's said that a lot of the LDS students are there not only for education, but to find their eternal companion, as in husband or wife. While there, he met Margit Erickson. I know, I don't know if I said that right, but I believe it's Margit. She was also a student at BYU, and she was from Sweden. Born in 1939, Margit converted to the LDS Church at the age of 18 before she headed off to BYU. Margit was a soft-spoken young lady who was somewhat easily influenced. Bruce informed Margit's roommate that he had a revelation that he was supposed to marry Margit. In December of 1961, she and Bruce got married. Then Margit dropped out of school, and by 1965, when 
Bruce graduated, they already had two children. The family then moved to Salt Lake City. Four years later, in 1969, Bruce announced that he had had another revelation. He was going to be the next prophet for the LDS Church. In 1970, the current prophet passed away, and Bruce was positive that he would be the replacement. Unfortunately for him, he was not the next prophet. It was Joseph Fielding Smith. Bruce was very depressed that he was not given the role that he knew he was destined for. Prior to this, Bruce had informed the officials in the church that he, Bruce, was God and the Holy Spirit and Christ. And he thought that they should give all of the tithes that the members of the church gave to him. At this point, the church had had enough. Bruce and Margit were excommunicated from the church for apostasy. After this, Bruce legally changed his name to Emmanuel David and his wife's name to Rachel David. He also gave his appearance a little change-up. He grew out his hair, which he wore in a braid, and he also grew a beard. Emmanuel David then did what most of us would do when trying to get a fresh start. He started his own cult. It had about 13 members, most of them being family members and a couple of friends. Almost all of these new members were excommunicated from the LDS Church, just like Emmanuel David. So these new members all took on the surname of David, and they referred to Emmanuel David as the Messiah, since that is what he claimed to be. He would sometimes refer to himself as the Holy Trinity, as in God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. His followers believed it, and it was pretty obvious that David believed it too. David started carrying around a big old long sword that he said was a holy weapon. One side of it was inscribed with holiness to the Lord, and the other had his name David on it, and next to his name was the Star of David. Emmanuel David then decided to take his family and his cult and move them to the town of Manti. While in the town, he canoodled and scammed a few prominent people who then made donations to his cult. And with donations, David and his family slash followers started a knife crafting business. It's probably the only legitimate revenue stream that they had. But it wasn't the only one. Besides convincing others to donate to their cause, cult members got very good at scamming people into donating money. The typical way they did this was by feigning some kind of family emergency that they needed money for. These little scams did not go completely unnoticed, though, because a little agency called the FBI caught wind of it and started investigating the group for wire fraud. It figured he better get gone, so he told his family and his followers to spread out and live in different hotels in different states, mostly in the West. Eventually, though, they do end up back in Salt Lake City in 1971. The David family was residing at the International Dunes Hotel, and at this point, Rachel and Emmanuel David had seven children. They had five-year-old Rachel, six-year-old David, eight-year-old Joseph, nine-year-old Deborah, 10-year-old Joshua, 13-year-old Elizabeth, and 14-year-old Rebecca. The children were homeschooled and had never stepped foot in a public school. People who saw them, which were few and far between, described them as neat and clean, literate, and well-behaved. The boys wore braided hair like their father, and the girls wore theirs long, parted down the middle, and held back from their face with barrettes. Kids were only allowed to speak to other people if their dad, Emmanuel David, gave them permission. The hotel suite where the family was living cost about $90 a day, and that was paid every day by Emmanuel David with a crisp 
under a dollar bill. David was a big man, about six foot four and 300 pounds, and he had expensive tastes. So the family would get food brought into their hotel room from fairly expensive restaurants in the area. It is estimated that the family was using about $300 a day to keep up their living situation. $1,200 a day in today's money. Now, Emmanuel David didn't work and really hadn't since 1965. Maybe an odd job here and there, but nothing steady or regular. So how were they paying for their meals in the hotel room? Well, I'll tell you how. By having David's followers pay for it. Cult members sold their homes and their belongings in order to give the money to Emmanuel. Others, people not yet in the cult but wanting to join, would often have to pay to be accepted. Supposedly, one woman gave $25,000 to the family. Now, I give you all of this background to prepare you for what ultimately happens. To prepare you for the day that Rachel David does the unthinkable. On August 3rd, 1978, she took her seven children to an 11th floor balcony of the International Dune Hotel in Salt Lake City, Utah, where they were living. This had been their home for the last year. On this day, with her children accompanying her, they go to the 11th floor. Here, the older children move stairs to the balcony railing and use them to climb up so that they could fling themselves over the edge and to their deaths. Rebecca threw the younger children over and then jumped herself. Why? Why would a mother do this? Well, here is why. Remember back in Manti when the FBI were looking into wire fraud with the cult? Well, one follower, Matthias David, was convicted earlier that year for wire fraud. This is 1978. He'd conned someone out of money, claiming it was for a paralyzed nine-year-old girl. But Matthias was not the only one being looked at. The FBI was taking a good long look at Emmanuel David. But, but, but that potential legal trouble wasn't the real reason that led up to the murder-suicide committed by Rachel. It was motivated by the fact that on August 1st, a hiker had found the body of Emmanuel David dead in the passenger seat of a truck he had borrowed the day before. There was a garden hose going from the exhaust pipe to the inside of the truck, and any areas that might have allowed air in or out had been stuffed with cloth. On August 2nd, police go to tell Rachel. The trip she makes the next day to the 11th floor is prompted by finding out that her husband had committed suicide by carbon monoxide poisoning. Rachel, and probably the older children, and maybe even the younger ones, believed that they could not continue on without Emmanuel David to lead them. So Rachel decided that they would join him in death. Witnesses below confirmed that the older children appeared to jump of their own accord, but Rachel got through two of the younger ones over herself. The people on the street below were outraged and horrified, and after watching all of these children fall to the ground, they began to scream up at her, shouting obscenities and demanding that she jump as well, which she did. According to reports, Rachel and four of the children died after hitting a roof on the first floor balcony or hitting the ground. Three children survived and made it to the hospital, but sadly, two of them didn't make it. One child did. Five-year-old Rachel David survived the fall, but was in serious condition, and initially doctors didn't believe that she would survive. She did, after multiple surgeries, the first of which required 21 units of blood. 
Eventually, she was released from the hospital. Not a lot is known about what all happened to Rachel after leaving the hospital. Uh, I do know she was in foster home for a bit and a few different care facilities. Autopsies on the deceased Davids were done. Not surprisingly, they had fractures of the legs, ankles, or pelvis. What this indicates, though, is that they all went down feet first. And according to witnesses, none of them, even the younger ones, made any noise. They were falling. This led the medical examiner to point out that someone who jumps of their own accord doesn't usually make any sounds. There was only $5 in Emmanuel's wallet back at the van where he killed himself and in the hotel room Rachel had about 65. There were no suicide notes and none of the children were wearing shoes. Their shoes were found in plastic bags inside of a closet in the hotel room. The speculation is that Emmanuel killed himself because he was losing disciples, which meant less money. The FBI was eyeballing him and he had made a couple of prophecies that had not come true. One of those prophecies was that California was going to fall into the ocean, and the other was that Salt Lake City was going to be destroyed by fire. The state had to pay to bury the eight family members. The children's caskets had flowers on them, pink for the girls and yellow for the boys. The caskets of Rachel and Emmanuel David were left bare. The entire David family was buried in one unmarked grave until just a few years ago when a headstone was finally brought and placed. In April of 1993, someone from the show Inside Edition tracked Rachel down. She is confined to a wheelchair and lives with her uncle, Leonard Erickson. This is what Rachel had to say. Quote, I remember my father said he will be back. I know he will. My father never lied. End quote. She goes on to tell the interviewer that she has tried to follow the suicide order she was given and has made several attempts over the years to complete the suicide. Rachel confirms that she jumped willingly and that the death of her family members was ordained. In 2018, 56-year-old Rachel was still alive, but I really don't know if she is still with us today. I hope that she is, and I hope she is no longer trying to end her life. That wraps up the Triple Ds. Hang tight for the final crumb. Just a heads up that next week starts the State of Murder series, which should be an interesting ride. While you wait, you can follow me on Instagram or Facebook or send me an email at acrimebiscuit at gmail.com. Here's your final crumb. You shouldn't karate chop people in the neck and toss them into a canal, nor should you steal underwear and then assault and murder the owner of those underwear. Those things mean you're a monster and need to be locked away. But if you think you're God and your twisted mind games cause your wife and children to throw themselves from a building to their deaths, you're not just a monster, you're Satan. Thanks for joining me. See you next time.